And if you have your Bible, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to um, the second book in the Bible, Exodus, second book of Moses. We started our study last week. Let us pray before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege of being able to hold your word, your revelation in our hands. Thank you that every word comes through you. We just pray this morning that we would listen, have ears to hear, and that we would understand what you are saying to us in your words. Holy Spirit, help me to speak well of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. So Exodus chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 15 to verse 22. Exodus 1, verse 15, this is the word of God. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. May God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant one. Well, the focus of the chapter, the focus of the passage we read, it's verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So that's the focus, that's my focus. But we'll get there, but I want to walk through the passage first of all, show you a little bit of what's going on in this chapter. And in verse 15, you have this strange juxtaposition. Because you have the king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful leader in the world, and his name is not mentioned. And as much as some scholars who are educated beyond their intelligence would like to tell us, they don't know his name. We do not know his name. So that's one hand. But on the other hand, you have two lowly midwives whose names are mentioned for all eternity. We'll remember them for all eternity. Shipra and Pua. And it's so like the Lord that through this ordeal in Egypt, the Pharaoh isn't even given a name. He's so insignificant, he's not given a name. He is an instrument in the hand of the Lord for his glory. But these two women are named so we can remember them forever. And I think it's poignant that today, on Remembrance Day, we remember Shipra and Pua. 
But they were probably the only—they they weren't the, the only midwives in Israel. That, you know, that would have been clear. That would have been a tall task with all these babies being born. That would have been a little bit of a stretch. But they were probably two of the chief midwives who had some responsibility over others. And they were given a command from the unnamed Pharaoh himself when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stall. If it is a son, you shall kill him, and if it is a girl, you should let them live. And people have scratched their heads over this, and some have said, well, shouldn't it be the reverse? And, you know, what's going on here? Why kill what will be the strongest part of your workforce to build storehouses and pyramids? You want to control the population. Doesn't it make sense to kill the women? Because they're the ones who are giving birth. Yeah, they really are. And so one man could have um, children with multiple women, but only a woman can have one man's child at a time. So why not kill the women? And maybe Pharaoh wanted to get rid of the boys so that as the girls grew up, he could have them as some kind of harem for himself and his cronies. Or maybe he thought that women are dependent on the man. It'd be hand harder for them to raise their families and to farm their crops without a generation of boys. But the best explanation is probably in verse 10. If you go back, come let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and if war breaks out they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And that seems to be the major fear in, in Pharaoh's mind, as it were. That as the Israelites grew and multiplied, that they might join forces and become a military threat against him and the Egyptians. So let us kill their military forces, namely their men. And it's likely that several years elapsed between verse 16, when the midwives were given this command from Pharaoh, and verse 18, when, if you like, they were brought to him to explain themselves. And it wasn't as if Pharaoh was watching over their shoulder or he had his guys watching over their shoulder saying, what are you going to do? Because if he wanted to do that, he could have just gone and killed the boys himself. But he wanted to do this, you know, surreptitiously and he, so he had the midwives do it. So it's likely to be several years later when this unnamed pharaoh heard the report that there's still lots of boys running around. What happened to the decree? Well, I thought we would only see girls running around. And perhaps it took a, little, you know, a few years for that to kind of click on, that these babies weren't actually girls, but they were boys. So pharaoh brought back Shiphrah and Pure and asked them the question that they had long feared probably. Why have you let the boys live? And their explanation may have been partly true. They said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. You know, and uh, as we're running there, we're too late. We're too late. The babies come. We can't get there in time. It could be from the translation that the midwives are saying, the Hebrew women are, are like wild animals. You know, they kind of breed like rabbits. That could be one translation. Or it could be saying that they are vigorous women, unlike Egyptian women, they're very active. Perhaps it could be that the Egyptian women that Pharaoh would have known would have been very passive. And I know, yeah, I know, and I, I really do know, I'm not making a point here, because 
it's hard to be passive in birth for the, for the woman, I think. I think I'm right in saying that. But they would get the baby out, maybe, and then let somebody else take care of the baby and nurse it. But the Hebrew women were involved in all of it. They were ready to be active and engaged. So Shipra and Pure are saying, it is different. They're on top of things. We can't get there in time. It may have been partially true. But it raises a question. Were they wrong? And I'm sure that you have, uh, you know, you've come across this question. I mean, I get asked it all the time in, in various settings, not only in Christian settings as well. And the classic example is in the Nazis coming, for example, in World War II and saying to, to the people across the continent, in France and Holland and Belgium, are you hiding Jews? What is the right thing to do? What is the right thing to do? To hide them and to preserve their life is good. So are you obliged to tell the truth? Are you obliged to tell the truth? And you must have been asked this question before. To try and, you know, usually it's to try and catch you out. So were Shipra and Pure obliged to tell the truth? Did they, in giving a half-truth, commit a sin? And uh, I, you, and John Calvin says, and I actually disagree with John Calvin. You can, it's true. John Calvin said that Chipper and Pure sinned, and but I don't see anything in the text that leads us to that conclusion at all. John, Kil, John Calvin says to not kill the children was right, but when Pharaoh asked them, they should have just said, "We didn't kill the baby boys because we don't want to obey your wicked commands." And uh, John Calvin goes on to say, in the answer of the midwives, two vices are to be observed, seeing they neither confess their piety with proper ingenuity, and what is worse, they escape by telling a lie. And he goes on to say that it's only because of God's indulgence that he overlooked their iniquity and rewarded them for their faith. That's John Calvin's view on this passage. But I disagree with him because I see no indication at all that they did anything that was considered blameworthy. In fact, every indication we get from this is that they were praised for their actions. They were named. And you can see this in four different verses. In verse 15, they're given names. They will be remembered for being the heroines in the history of Israel. Verse 17 said they feared God. Verse 20 said God dealt well with the midwives. And verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he blessed them with family. So four different verses strongly suggest that God was pleased with them. And there is no in indication at all that God was saying what they did was good, but I will overlook the way they did it. And uh, theologians for centuries have distinguished three types of lies. There is, the malicious, there is a malicious lie, which is to serve yourself and harm your neighbour, which is always wrong. Then there is the jocular lie, which is to jest or amuse with falsehood. And, if, you know, I don't think it would be a sin to throw a surprise birthday party and be a bit, you know, saying, you know, do you know what's happening tonight? No, not really. You know what I mean? It's, it's you know, that kind of thing I mean by that. And... Uh, 
But it, it's the third is the lie of necessity. Is it ever appropriate to lie in order to protect your neighbour? I'm not talking about a lie that just smooths things over for you, like that of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis. They're with Abimelech. They see that their wives are really good looking, and they're afraid that he might kill them if he knows that they're their wives. So they, that famous lie we saw, she's my sister, so that they'll be left alone. It was just to make things easier for them. That's not a good thing. And it put their wives in danger. But I would argue, as many have, that under dire circumstances it is appropriate to do what Shipra and Pua did. It's dangerous to live as a Christian in the real world, where you have to understand the fourth commandment said to honour the Sabbath. And then David and his men ate some of the showbread on the Sabbath, and Jesus said that's not a violation of the fourth commandment. The fifth commandment says to honour your father and mother, but Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your father and mother. He's making a point about whom you follow. And Peter and John, before the Sanhedrin, say, you judge for yourself what it is right to obey God and man. We have to follow God, even if it means going against the governing authorities. And that's not a violation of the fifth commandment. Neither did the Old Testament consider it a violation of the sixth commandment to protect yourself, your possessions and your family by killing an intruder. And it's the same here in some ways. The commandment says do not bear false witness and the context is a courtroom. But the midwives praised in this passage as Rahab was praised and was lauded as a woman of faith in Hebrews 11. I see nothing in the text to say that Shipra and Pure were praised for their faith and condemned for their actions. And then we go on to my next point is that God's blessing and the bitter circumstances. God dealt well with the midwives in verse 20. The people multiplied and grew strong. And Pharaoh doesn't get it and he's got a bit further to go expressing how much he isn't going to get this. He said, first of all, we're going to make them work really hard. We'll kill them off that way. When that doesn't work, he says, we'll get the midwives to do it for us. But they just kept multiplying. God blessed them despite Pharaoh's plans. Because God had promised, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I will curse. And Pharaoh is going to find out the hard way that God keeps his promises. But the blessing... It's not just increasing for Israel, it is increasing for the midwives. Most midwives then, historically, would have been older women who hadn't had families. Now, they have families of their own. Blessings are increasing, but so are the bitter circumstances. And do you see how the progression is working here with Pharaoh and the state? In the first plan, he says there are too many people. Let us work them to death. And then he has a second plan, because that doesn't work. I'll call in the midwives. And I'll kill them then. But that doesn't work. So the, he goes to the third plan. When any Egyptian sees a baby boy born, round him up and throw him into the Nile. Round up all the Jews. 
And we know sadly that that is not the last time that commandment has been given. Throw the baby boys into the Nile. It'll be quick, easy, painless, mess-free, hassle-free. And it's no coincidence that the first plague was to turn the Nile into blood. It's no coincidence that the first plague was to turn the Nile into blood. You want a river of blood? The Lord says, I will give you a river of blood. God has a way of giving his enemies what they want in a way they do not want. God is not mocked. We fear the Lord. So the question is, whom do you fear? That's that verse 17. But the midwives feared God. Have you ever considered that both sides of this equation are afraid? Have you thought about that? The midwives fear God. Pharaoh fears the people. Who do you fear? Both are motivated by fear. Maybe you fear being unpopular. I know, I mean, that is something I recognise in myself. That I'm a people pleaser. I love to be, I don't like to be thought badly of. But that can motivate you in a wrong direction. Maybe you fear getting sick. I know that, I know, you know, before I was laid low with cancer some years back, I used to say I might not have much money, I may not have many things, but I have my health. And God took that. So do you fear getting sick? Do you fear getting hurt? Do you fear being alone? Do you fear losing a loved one? Do you fear upsetting your enemies? Do you fear letting down a friend? Do you fear disappointing your parents? You might fear strangers. You might fear crowds. I always say that the greatest extroverts are always the introverts. I, I, I think I'm a bit of an in, in, introvert, but no one else seems to think so. But um, you know, sort of like you know, people might, some people might fear crowds. Some people fear small spaces. Some people fear snakes. Some people fear spiders. Or spiders in crowds in the midst of a small space, and that's some people's worst nightmare, isn't it? Being in, a, being in a crowd, in a small place, with a spider. Um, I don't want to scare you or anything like that. But Or maybe you, can, you fear the unknown. You want everything just so. That you can wake up on Monday morning and be in complete control. Maybe you fear that unknown. Maybe you fear death. So both your life and mine is motivated by fear. There is some fear that is speaking to you, telling you what to do and what not to do. That gets you out of bed on that Monday morning, that gets you to work, that keeps you on the straight and narrow, that pushes you to places you never thought you would go. You fear something or someone, and the Bible says the way to go about your life is to fear God. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And there are a few, few examples of it in Genesis that we have seen. What does it mean to fear God? In Genesis 20 verse 11, Abraham lies about his wife. 
And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. In other words, they do not fear God, so they will do whatever they want. They have no higher moral code. They will kill me to get to my wife. In Genesis 22, verse 12, Abraham is told to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, the son that he waited so long for. And Genesis 22, verse 12 says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Why? Because he did not withhold his son from him. In other words, he considered obedience to God more important than his own sense of security. In Genesis 42, verse 18, when Joseph was wanting to convince his brothers that he was telling the truth and that they should leave one of them behind, he reassured them by saying, Genesis 42, verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. In other words, you can trust me because I know that I have to give an account to God. In Exodus 18, later on, we see Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, say to him, there are too many people, you cannot do this by yourself. Why not find some capable men who fear God? Men who would not take a bribe. So what does it mean to fear God? It means you have honesty and integrity because you know that God is watching even though no one is. That's true. When you're alone and you think that no one else can see what you are doing, God can. And the fear of God then control, in that sense, is that controlling of our lives. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That you, that you believe there is a God. And you believe that God is interested in what you do. When we fear God, the presence and purposes of God weigh on us more than the world, the flesh and the devil. And we're coming to, to a place in our national life where we will be tested, where we'll be asked, do you fear God or do you fear man? Will you give in to the culture and compromise or will you stand because you fear God? There's a verse in the New Testament that says, perfect love casts out fear. There is a sense of fear that we're not to have as Christians. A kind of slavish fear where God hates us and is going to condemn us. Even though we're his children and have put our faith in Christ. That kind of fear is cast away by faith in Jesus. But even for us who follow Jesus Christ, there is a healthy fear of holy God. We may profess all sorts of truths. But there are so many people who say they're Christians who live like atheists. They go about their days as if God doesn't exist. As if he made no promises to them. As if there was nothing to fear from God's judgment or discipline. My friends, the truth is that we're saved by grace from God's judgment. But there is a judgment to come. And we're doing our friends and neighbours, the biggest disservice of all if we fail to warn them about the judgment to come. It is 
not loving not to tell them. It is loving to warn them of the judgment to come. People profess all sorts of things. Maybe they go to church their whole lives. But when it comes in their hearts, they live as if there's no God. So do you live as if God exists? The midwives did. The midwives did because they feared God more than the unnamed Pharaoh. Think of everything that they could have feared. They could have feared the majority. And even though the Israelites were growing, they were still a foreign people in a foreign land. They were a minority amongst the majority Egyptian culture. It's hard to be a minority. Those of us who are in the majority have a lot to learn from brothers and sisters who live in the minority. But all of us as believers are cognitive minorities. And we have to embrace that because we're going to believe things that people do not believe and people will not like us for. And we need to decide, who do you fear? Because if you believe the Bible, if you love the Lord Jesus and you seek to follow him, if God is your father, you're going to believe things that the world thinks are wrong. It's worse than that. The world thinks that you are a nutter for believing what you believe. A generation ago, even in my younger years, which is not that long ago, but if people didn't like what Christians believed, they would laugh at me. They would say, you're backward. They used to call me Jimmy Heaven at school. There's a secret. I don't like being called Jimmy, by the way, so no one else try it. But, um, or, you know, you're not very scientific. You're kind of laughable. But now it's gotten worse because main Christian belief is no longer laughable but sinister. Believing in the Bible is no longer a joke. It is a sinister thing. So we're not nuts. We're nasty. And, and these women could have feared that. They could have feared for their lives and their livelihood. They had a lot to lose. They had their jobs, their families, their safety, their security, and their heads. They could have easily rationalised it this way. Shipra, we're just doing what we are told. I don't like it, but it's the law of the land. We have to be good subjects. We don't want to make things worse. They could have even thought there is a greater good. If we kill a few, more will live. Maybe Pharaoh will see that the population is decreasing a bit and be nicer to us. They could have rationalised that. You know, Shipra, we really have an opportunity to make things better if we could only just kill a few. And before, you know, I've said it before, but there's, there's been an article about the current culture by Kevin DeYoung. And he, he said the first thing that goes is silence. When the Christians are silent. When we don't say what we should say. And the next thing is a conversation. That we have a conversation about what's going on. To see whether there's way that we can come together. And the third thing is compromise. 
capitulation. We've lost. But in the, you know, and they maybe shipper and purer would have been tempted to rationalise. They're not, they're babies, they're not real people. And we should be ashamed today because we live in a world where millions are murdered around the world. Millions are murdered in the name of what? Convenience? The baby in the womb is not worth as much as the life outside. But in the ancient world it was the Jews who prohibited abortion and infanticide. And infanticide wasn't outlawed until Christianity came into the Roman Empire 2,000 years later. So Christians, don't believe what you say by the way, don't believe what you hear by the way, Christians and those in the Judea Christian tradition have always been opposed to killing children. They always have been. And the first century constitution of the church said, the first century you shall not abort a child or commit infanticide. First century. I read an article which said the other day, that it was that it was that it was um, white men in the 18th century who prohibited abortion. Everyone was all, always all right with that until that point. It's an absolute lie from the pit of hell. Christians have always been opposed to it, and in Jesus we see a scandalous love for children. And as Christians, we should have a scandalous love for children. When others wanted to push them away, Jesus said, "Bring them to me." I said last week that we live in a town where dogs are treated better than children, and we live in a world where dogs are treated better than children. And Jesus said, the measure of your love for me is the measure of your love for these children. And he said, honour these little ones and you will honour me. Send them away because they're weak, socially insignificant and bothersome, and you've demonstrated that you do not value God's kingdom. There is grace for our sins, my friends. There is repentance. There is salvation available. There is mercy for the sins that I have committed. Praise God. And for anyone who's made a decision to pressure someone to end a human life can know forgiveness at the foot of the cross. But we need to see what motivated Shipra and Pure was the fear of God. They didn't rationalise themselves that we could just get away with it. No. I want to read you a quotation. I read it to my family this week. I read it to a few others as well. I'll just, I'll just read the quotation. I wish to take advantage of the present opportunity to point out the, the unbalance between the birth rate of the unfit and the fit. Admittedly, the greatest present menace to civilization can never be rectified by the inauguration of a cradle competition between these two classes. In this matter, the example of the inferior classes, the fertility of the feeble-minded, the mentally defective, the poverty-stricken classes should not be held up for emulation to the mentally and physically fit, though less fertile parents of the educated and well-to-do classes. On the contrary, the most urgent problem today is to limit and discourage the over-fertility of the mentally, physically and poor. So I asked my wife who said that, she said Hitler. But it wasn't Hitler. It was the founder of Planned Parenthood. It was Margaret Sanger in the 20s, the founder of Planned Parenthood. She said that. It's absolutely evil. 
It is eugenics. And as Christians, we will not render unto Pharaoh what belongs to God. And we, as Christians, need to have a fear of God about these things. We must not be silent. Because we must get verse 17 deep, deep into our hearts that the midwives feared God and would not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Brothers and sisters, we must fear God and not do as the king of Egypt commands in this situation. Think of the situation that they were in. On the one hand, there was their security. There was the preservation of their lives. On the other hand was uncertainty, suffering and possibly death. How would you choose? The fear of God tipped the balance. They feared God and did not kill babies. What could you put in that blank? I feared God and did not go to that party. I feared God and did not sleep with my boyfriend. I feared God and did not pressure my girlfriend. I feared God and I didn't go to that site, that website. I feared God and I didn't take those pills. I feared God and I didn't cheat my way to the top. I feared God and I didn't leave my spouse. I feared God and I didn't dishonour my parents. Put your name in the blank. Because I fear God, I did not do something. John Calvin said, and I'm going to quote him very positively, this reverence towards God has greater influence with them. So what can be said about you? What has influence over you? What they say on the TV? What happens on Strictly Come Dancing? What's on the cover of a magazine? What, oh, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. At least Matt Hancock's got a job now, hasn't he? Anyway, but... What everyone else says about you seems to be saying. What is a greater influence on you? For Shipra and Pure, it was the fear of God and reverence towards his holy name. And that's why we're here today. Because we revere his holy name. And there is a little, there's not much fear of God in our land today. But as you can see throughout the Bible and history, we should fear God because God has a way. God has a way of getting people to fear him. There is a good way and there's a hard way. We may be on our way to the hard way. There's a little fear of God in the church. And one quotation I had was, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant, his grace is too ordinary, his judgment too benign, his gospel too easy, and his Christ is too common. What, what is your God? Because so often it's a cartoon God who's always sending lightning bolts. He's just that kind of God. Or it's the opposite extreme and he is the cosy uncle in the sky who never says a bad word to anybody. What is your God like? God is not to be trifled with. But when there is, because there is discipline, he disciplines those he loves us. But at the same time, we know that when we disappoint him, he is our father and he loves us. He's not to be trifled with, but he is our father 
and he loves us. We've turned to a God that we can use rather than a God that we must obey. So I have two simple questions for you this morning. Is there a God and is he to be feared? And I think if you ask that question, a lot of people would say yes and no. Is he to be feared? Or have you created a God of your own imagination that he gives nothing but pats on the back and says, there you go. That is a God who doesn't resemble the God who Pharaoh is going to encounter. That God led Shipra and Pure to say no to the most powerful man in the world. What you believe and how you live is shaped by who you fear. There is good news because the God who we fear is the God who casts out fear. He says, fear not. The God of holy presence is the God that is on our side. The God who is strong enough to judge is sweet enough to forgive if you would bow, submit and fear. For the story of Exodus is the story of our lives, that there is no freedom apart from the fear of God. May God bless the word for his glory. Amen.